Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host going solo today, and we're co-produced by my pal Tristan Drew. And by the way, if you like the show, please leave us a review, hopefully five stars with some comments on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us in the rankings and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And without further ado today, it is my absolute privilege to introduce Julie Mason. Julie is a journalist who was White House correspondent with the Houston Chronicle and the Washington Examiner before joining Politico. And then in 2011, was it? Yes. In 2011, made the switch to satellite radio. She's been the host of the Press Pool on the POTUS channel on Sirius XM and is now moving to the mornings with Julie Mason in the morning. Julie, <laughs> that's a big deal. This is such an honor. Uh, thank you so much for coming in. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me. This is really This is awesome. So um, I, first, I do have to clarify, do we really have to get up at 3 a.m. here on the West Coast to enjoy your what did somebody say? Body personality and quick wit. <laughs> uh, you can enjoy that on demand. Uh, oh. And there might be a replay of the show that's still being worked out. Um, that's something that I asked for, but y- you never know. They felt like the show might be stale by 3 p.m. East. Oh, stop. You know, because it's sort of like, set- well, it's like sort of setting the table for the day's news. So they think like maybe by the afternoon it might be old news, but you can always get it on demand on the app or, you know. Great. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for us, uh, I, I, I wake up at five, so, you know, I don't think it'll be stale by that time. <laughs> well, you know, because that's when the alcohol from the night before starts to wear off. So. <laughs> Understood. Got yeah. It. Yeah. So did you, uh, you grew up in Massachusetts, right? Mm, total mass. <laughs> you know, I was always curious. Did you, did you grow up with brothers by any chance? This is kind of random question. Yeah, I have two brothers and two sisters. Oh, okay. I, it's just the way that you interact with some of your um, male counterparts that I was like, oh man, she's she's got she's got like she's tough, but she doesn't take them too seriously. Like she knows how to deal with the the yeah. dudes. Bro vibe, yeah, totes. <laughs> um, so, did you grow up wanting to go into journalism? Was that something that was always on your mind? Yes. In fact, my mother had always wanted to be a journalist. She was, but she was born in the 1920s. Um, and so growing up, she, her options were really limited. She had a dream, a girl's dream to be, she wanted to be a foreign correspondent, you know, after seeing all those 1940s movies with like, hello, darling, and, you, know, <laughs> like, you know, these tough journalism broads. And that was her dream. But, you know, options were really limited for girls when she was growing up. So she, she had the option of teacher, nurse, mother. And so, you know, she couldn't take that route. And so always growing up, she told me that uh, this would be a great life and that I seemed kind of temperamentally suited for it. And cause I love travel and I'm kind of nosy and you know, <laughs> I could write. And so she kept telling me that this, she thought this would be a great thing for me. Um, and that it had been her dream, but it wasn't one of those things of like a parent pushing a kid to be a doctor. I mean, she pushed me to be a journalist. Yeah. Like, so 
you know, travel, like live around, live all over the place, get to know people. Like it was, it was really, it was a great suggestion. So I always had it in the back of my head. Yeah. That must've been a trip when you started, you know, when you got your White House press corps gig and uh, was she, is she still with us or? No, no, no. My mother died when I was 27. So she got to see me become like a really important local reporter, but she okay. never saw me get to the White House. And I would have been so thrilled. Oh man. Well, I'm sure you're making her proud. Yes, yes. My parents both were incredibly proud of my journalism career. So American you, is it true that you got kicked out? <laughs> oh my God. I got kicked out so hard. Like not even a little. Not even like, well, we think you should leave. It was like, no, never come back here. <laughs> they were so mean about it. And I like appealed the decision and they were like, yeah, no, we don't want you. You're oh man. Terrible. I know it was so harsh. Was it what was it like was it the punk scene that you were into? Was it something yeah. that just I mean, I'd gone away to boarding school for high school, so I was used to living away from home and kind of phoning it in a little bit, frankly. Yeah. And uh, not that, I mean, boarding school, prep school was really hard. And, you know, so that is actually the entirety of my education now. But so, yeah, so I went away to college and I was just so into the hardcore scene in DC and to punk rock and everything. And all I did was go to shows and sleep in. I never went to class. I never did any schoolwork. And by the time they finally kicked me out, I had like a 0.19 GPA and a lot of incompletes. And, th and they were just done with my punk rock ass and they threw me out. But it was, it was exactly what what I needed to like get serious about life. I mean, I, in, I, I had to fail in order to succeed. And I, and looking back, I think that if I had finished college and done it like the straight, like good way, I, I wouldn't be anywhere close to where I am now. Like I absolutely had to fail. You know, it's funny. I, I don't know if I ever tell, told the story, but um, I, similar experience. I did really well in high school, got to college and realized I didn't actually have to show up for class. And I was at a big school, I was at Rutgers. Oh. So very quickly, I figured out I could show up, pick up the syllabus. Uh, most of the classes you could mail in a midterm. I had to show up for most of the, the finals. And I ended up with like a three, four, three, five at the end of that first semester. <laughs> um, and so the second semester I was like, what, what, what am I doing? Like, why am I even trying? Why am I working so hard? Yeah. <laughs> So I spent the entire rest of my college career that the, the year that I pretended I was going to college, visiting my buddies at BU and Penn State and down down in Richmond. It was uh, but not having finished, I realized what would have been my sophomore year, junior year, I had to work that much harder. I kind of had something to prove, you know, so um, that, it's interesting. So how, how did you how? Was Houston Chronicle your first gig? And if so, how did you land that? Um... Well, my first gig was um, um, in, in D.C. back in the 80s. There was this uh, incredible culture um, of clerkships, which is like a sort of a precursor to an internship. And they were incredibly competitive, really hard to get. Like being a clerk was something that you did as part of your apprenticeship in journalism. And so um, I had a friend. Dan Matthews, who now is at uh, PETA. And he had a clerkship at the Dallas Morning News. And he was like, well, um, I'm, I don't want my job anymore, so you can have it. And we were so stupid that we didn't know that that's not how you get a job. 
in journalism. <laughs> we thought like, you can just give your friend your job and save everyone a lot of trouble. And so it was so preposterous, right? He had this incredibly competitive clerkship in, in what was then a very top paper, the Dallas Morning News, very important paper in politics. And, and so he just came in one day and introduced me in the office as his replacement. And later the, the you know, editors there told me they were so like flummoxed by how stupid <laughs> we were that they were like, okay, well, if she's dumb, we'll just fire her. Uh, but this saves us, this actually does save us some trouble. So I just like took over that job and it was a good way to not have to go home because you can imagine my mother was really mad at me oh, yeah. for getting kicked out of school. I mean, this was a $40,000 a year boondoggle school. It was ridiculous. But anyway, so, uh, so I had, you know, my job and uh, so I got to stay in DC and it was just part-time. I was making like $175 a week and uh, mostly like clipping papers, answering phones, that kind of thing. But that like really was my foot in the door in journalism. And A, it saved me from having to go back home to Massachusetts and go to community college. And it like basically put me in the right place to sort of launch the whole journalism thing. It was, and again, like I never, if it wasn't like for screwing up and getting kicked down, I never would have found that, like my friend wouldn't have said like, have my job, you know, <laughs> none of this would have happened. So it all like sort of fell into place in the right way for a person who screwed up. <laughs> so w once you got to Dallas Morning News, did you know who to look for to try to learn the craft of no. journalism? No, no, I was like, I was a child. I was what, I was like 19 years old, had just gotten kicked out of school, didn't know anything about Texas, didn't know anything about anything, like really didn't even follow the news if we're being honest. But it was like, suddenly I had to like look normal, right? Cause I was working in an office and I was this major punk rocker. So I had to like tone that down and buy clothes. And I remember one day um, I, I was living in an apartment in Adams Morgan, Adams Moron here in DC and my cats <laughs> had peed in my shoes and I hadn't realized it overnight. And so I put my shoes on and went to work and like my feet started to sweat and the whole office smelled like the whole oh, no. bureau smelled like cat pee. And so of course these being journalists, they were on the case, like who, who brought that smell in the office? And obviously it was me. And so they <laughs> collection so that I could go buy new shoes during lunch. And like, that was kind of, that was not an irregular day. That was like any Tuesday. I was just like, you know, but in the in the end, they found it, you know, sort of entertaining and, and funny and they and and they found me capable and they gave me more and more work to do. And then they started giving me like some little stories to do. And then they kind of took me under their wing quite a bit. And it really I ended up staying there three years. It was great. That's a great story because it's part loving, but part hazing, <laughs> you yes. know. Totally. These grownups with this like punk rock 19 year old who's like get black hair and like, you know, trying to figure it out. So how, how did you actually learn how to write? How did you learn the craft of journalism? By doing it, really. I mean, by observing and doing it. I mean, I'd taken some journalism courses in school, so I had the rudimentaries, you know, I knew how to do it basically, but it was really, it's really by doing it. And um, by doing it, like when you're an intern, like then, you know, after clerkship, you become an intern and they really, they really teach you how to do it. There's actually nothing they can teach you much at journalism school that you can't learn like in the first six weeks at a newspaper. And editors are used to that. They're used to young people who don't, who can like have a little bit of raw talent but just need molding yeah so that's usually how that works out so a lot of interaction with editors and that, a lot that of hands-on sort of, yeah, yeah a lot of hands-on like I didn't know the difference between a plaintiff and a prosecutor when they first <laughs> sent me over to cover the courts and like it had to be explained to me but that's okay nobody minded it's right. like it's just 
what you do with young with up and comers. Yeah. You just reminded me of a story about the similar age. Uh, so I had an opportunity to go to this theater conservatory to learn that whole thing, but I didn't I didn't have a job, but I got an opportunity to be a stockbroker. So I ended up being a stockbroker during the day, going to a theater conservatory at night, but I didn't know the first thing about Wall Street. So I show up, I literally have, the only slacks I had were these plaid slacks. Oh my God. <laughs> Dirty scuffed up shoes. I thought it was like a little bit of character, you know, they, they dig it. You know, he's like, listen, he get, yeah, I don't know. Good. He slipped me like a couple hundred bucks. He's like that store go. I don't want to see you until you know, you fix yourself. That is so, so funny. <laughs> yeah. But so just certain things that you just, you, you don't know the, you don't know the vocabulary. You don't know the mores. You don't know anything. It's just, oh man. So I don't know how we, uh, how we survived those years. So the switch from Dallas morning news to the Houston Chronicle, how did that that, that that happened relatively early on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, so I was still in the Washington Bureau of the Dallas Morning News. And one day the bureau chief sidled up to my desk and asked, um, have you have you finished college? Mm. <laughs> I said, oh. yes, I feel that I have finished college. <laughs> I'm, I'm done with that. And it was like, great. We have a job for you in Dallas if you want it. You know, so they moved me to Dallas and that was really great. And and I had a terrific year in Dallas, learned so much, traveled the whole state. It was really, really wonderful. But part of the problem is when you start out as the clerk, yeah. you know, and everyone knows you as the clerk, then you're always the clerk who they're letting do stuff. So I felt like I had to leave. Like I didn't expect to be taken seriously, but I wanted to be taken not as the clerk who they were letting do something, you know. And uh, I didn't like the opportunities in Dallas. So I moved to Houston and there, it was such a different news culture there in Dallas. It was so competitive. It was so Ivy League. It was just like it was very cutthroat in the newsroom. And, and it was really hard to work your way up even to like a starter city desk beat like cops mm. or something like that. Like they might let you do that after five years. But in Houston, which is much hotter, it's much like actually steamier. Steamy. It's a steamy city. Um, and I mean this in the kindest way, but people just really didn't want to work that hard. It was so <laughs> hot. And and at the Houston Chronicle, like everyone was married to each other. Nobody really wanted to work that hard. And they couldn't give away like a, a hard news beat for love or money. So like someone coming in and they asked me what I wanted to do. I was like, I really want to cover city hall. And I want to cover like county government. And I really, whatever beats you have, I'll just really work hard. And they were, they were like, oh God, she wants to cover a beat. Like, okay. And they, so they, they were really happy because there was this like go-getter who actually wanted to do some stuff where in Houston, they were like, yeah, everyone just kind of wanted to be a GA, you know, just kind of like knock off early. And, and that is in no way to cast dispersions on their journalism. It was just a completely different culture. They were more into like writing really good stories and like really thoughtful stories and just having a different approach where in Dallas, it was just like this Ivy league, like go, go, go. Yeah. Wow. Totally it's different. so funny. Cause they're only what, like five, five hours apart driving. And yet it's such a different, different culture. Now this might sound like an ignorant question, but were there certain obstacles for a young woman at that time? Oh God. Yes. Oh okay. man. I actually consider it a really important education. You know, um, the kind of sexual harassment that I went through as a young girl, as a young girl covering politics in Texas. I remember I, in fact, I gave credit to my old boss recently about this because I was really struggling. I mean, these guys, these county commissioners and their staffs were disgusting. Mm. And the kind of things they would say to me, I was, you know, 23, 24 years old, like really just trying to make something happen. Like really like, a, like not aggressive, but real assertive and kind of mouthy. And they just, oh, I mean, oh. and uh, so I went to my boss 
he was this really smart, thoughtful city editor. And I told him how I was struggling and, and I, I, I actually really wanted him to fix it and do something for me and, and, and get these guys off my back. They were just like hounding me and hounding me. And he said, um, if you can't, if you can't cover politics here, you can't cover politics and you need to give it back to them as good as you get. I know you can do it. Just like, don't, don't be intimidated. Don't be cowed by this. He said, just do what you have to do to manage the situation. And he said, and if you can't, then you need to think about doing something else because it's always going to be like this in your career. And it was the best advice ever. It was not me too compliant at all. Right. right? And I right. think now, and I think, I think of, I thought of this all the time during the Me Too movement is like, we are depriving young women of the ability to handle disgusting, difficult situations. We're not going to change men. Men aren't going to change their behavior except to exclude women more definitively but I just I think it's too bad if he had fixed it for me if he had like made a few calls or so or whatever uh I, I would not have been helped in any way but in fact I I discovered like basically how to treat men and men who step out of line and it was the most invaluable education, not just for my professional career, but for life. And uh, anyway, so I recently had the opportunity to thank him some, I don't know what, 25 years later. And and he actually remembered that. Yeah. And I was like, and and still believes it is good advice. And, and I said, I still think so. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can't necessarily change how others treat you. I, you know, you're never going to, and, and nor would I ever excuse just unacceptable behavior and but at the same time, it's it's worth developing some sort of a thick skin, yes, being able to yes. know how to conduct oneself in, in yeah, difficult situations. Right, a skill set to be able to handle it. It, oh, it meant so much to me, and it served me in such good stead, like yeah. just throughout my life. And Houston Chronicles, where you earned your way into the White House press corps. Yeah, I mean, it took 20 years, but I worked really, really hard. Wow. And I, I loved Houston and I loved the paper there. And uh, it's just a great city and the people are wonderful. I mean, uh, it just has such a terrific culture. I was sad to leave, but after 20 years, I was ready to go. 20 years in Texas is a lot when you're from Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It couldn't be more different in so many ways. I can't mm -hmm. imagine. Mm -hmm. um, so I was trying to think of what references, what references I have to understand what it's like being in the White House press corps. So I'll just ask you, is is it more? Oh, what, what was the name of that show? Oh gosh, is it is it more um, House Veep of Cards? West Wing. <laughs> West Wing, House of Cards, West Wing, or Veep? Veep. It is one hundred and fifty percent Veep. Like it, it was so Veep that I actually had the cast of Veep on my show, and Frank Rich, who's one yeah, of the Frank Rich, producers, right? And we were laughing. I was we were laughing so hard at how DC it is. And people always ask me. People always ask that. Like they want it to be the West Wing. They want it to be like very high minded and with a lot of integrity and like actually no, it is profane. It is. Stupid! It's hilarious. <laughs> it's it's always a shambles. So I'm watching recently, you know, the the current outgoing press secretary, Kaylee McEnany, and I'm really hoping that she's playing this role. And then they go behind the scenes, and she talks to a journalist, and she says, "Yeah, I got to do my thing, and you got to do your thing. So this is what we're going to do when the camera's on." But it's really just like, no, it. I should be even more cynical than I am. Yeah, no, actually, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was like that. You know, she had her thing at the podium, but then behind the scenes, everyone loved her. She was she was very helpful and gracious and and everyone knew her to be a good person. Mm -hmm. And and most of the reporters at the White House really liked her. That's not the case with Kaylee, who is 100 percent of a troll. Oh, gosh. 
I, I'm getting a little ahead of myself now, but you were already, so you were already on radio by 2011. I'm trying to imagine how you would have dealt with this, the outgoing administration. I mean, there's specific things that even I cringe just seeing it third, you know, third, secondhand, um, just the outright blatant lying from day one, the crowd sizes to the um, enemy of the people to the, um, I couldn't imagine being at one of those rallies, you know, him pointing to the journalist, uh, you know, and, and inciting this uh, more than harassment. I just, I'm, I'm curious how you might have dealt with that if you ever experienced anything like that. Uh, yeah, sure. I, yeah, I mean, nothing to the scale of Trump, but I mean, I have, I'm sorry, I have to kind of break your heart a little bit. Obama was terrible on press too, oh. in different ways. He was, and 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 this is like kind of a a, a real issue among a White House reporters who've been there for a while that Obama was almost predatory to journalists. He uh, used the Espionage Act to try to prosecute them. He tried to put a New York Times reporter in prison. He surveilled uh, the phone and email records of journalists covertly to try to. Obama campaigned um, to be someone who protected whistleblowers. He said, I, it, like, I will protect government whistleblowers. And then he used all the powers of the Justice Department to ferret them out and prosecute them. Oh, so wow. he broke that. And then he used journalists to try to find out who these whistleblower sources are. So he was surveilling like journalists' Gmail and their parents' Gmail and seizing phone records. As I said, from the Associated Press, he tried to send James Risen of the New York Times to prison for not coughing up one of his intelligence sources so that Obama could prosecute him. I mean, his, and, and then he was um, incredibly disdainful and dismissive of the press, but that's neither here nor there. The, the way he used the powers of the government to go after journalists was incredibly bad and incredibly dark. And wow. by the very end of his administration, he changed up his policies because he was aware of how that would appear as his legacy. Okay. And there was a lot written about it. And there was a lot of consternation and there was a lot of anguish about his total lack of transparency his 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 deceitfulness and his dealings with reporters but nobody cared right because because like who's going to complain republicans are they right. gonna get mad and democrats just look the other way so it was just it was just the white house press corps and and you know others like len downey from the washington post who did a great report about it and others writing about it but nobody cared because it's obama and he's a saint right? right so so then right so then when trump started his shenanigans with the press you know people who like just tuned in four years ago were telling us you know this is an outrage you have to do something and we'd say well where were you four years ago when obama was trying to throw us in prison and they'd say well actually julie that never happened like sorry he was rude to you but you know this is the worst thing we've ever seen and i was saying well as far as i know like i'm not comparing but i don't think trump has ever tried to send a reporter to prison i think he would if he had thought of it right but uh but but obama's press policies were really pretty horrible and that's kind of lost in all this and mm. and i'm not comparing because trump is uniquely awful to press yeah the enemy of the people and journalists having to get security and and fearing for their safety and all that yeah that's all all horrible but it is it is it is not in isolation so you're striking upon a theme that i wanted to try to deconstruct and the accusation is that there is this liberal bias in the msm as they say, yeah, you're rolling your eyes. Um, but but there is there in that story. It sounds like there's a bit of that in that they tend to be more forgiving, at least towards certain politicians, if not toward a certain side, if we want to put it that way. Is that is that the case, or is are the journalists, your colleagues that you worked with, 
is there a, an earnest attempt to be as objective as possible, regardless of what their particular views are? Yeah, of course, definitely. I mean, that's the job. Um, people, People, journalists can have any viewpoint they want. And that's why this whole like journalists vote Democrat is such a canard. I could vote socialist. I could vote fascist. I could be a fascist. I could be whatever I want to be as long as I keep it out of my work. Right. If, as long as I present fairly and accurately and with various viewpoints and, you know, whatever, as long as I tell you what's as long as what I tell you is accurate and fair, it doesn't matter what my personal viewpoint is. Like mm. if I can keep it on my story, I don't expect journalists to have no viewpoint. And I actually we'd never talk about that. Like you never hear reporters like debating policy. We may talk about how someone's a jerk or someone's cool, but never like, well, I think the Affordable Care Act was a really bad idea. Like there's never a conversation like that. Certainly not among mainstream journalists. Right, right. Just and that's why this whole another canard that bothers me is like, well, you know, 90% of Trump stories were mean and 5% were nice. And it's like, you know, it's not our job to be like nice or negative or positive. It's just to report accurately and to report yeah. fairly. So that's the only test. Is the story accurate? Is it fair? And any other consideration, whether it's positive or negative, is <laughs> actually pretty irrelevant. Um, is there an objective way to measure what's true and what's not true? Or is there like alternative facts and alternative truth? And like, is there an objective way to measure that? Yeah, of course there is. I mean, uh, you know, there are facts, you know, and then there's conspiracy theory and there's BS and there's like something you heard somewhere and there's things you read on the internet. I'm really, I, I get really frustrated. I mean, journalists can do better and we, and always, we should always strive to be doing better. But there's a responsibility on citizens too, you know, to be informed, to, to rely on good sources of information. There's no obligation to do it. There's no requirement, but I'm, I'm tired of hearing how journalism has to change and journalism has to do this and that. Like people, if they want to get their news off Facebook, you know, don't come at me. That was a, that was a question I was going to ask later, but that's, that's a good point. So a, a great deal of the responsibility should be on individual consumers of news and how discerning we might be with where we're getting that news, even, even within a, an individual um, insti uh, what do you call it, uh, organization, there are certain reporters you know are just excellent. Yes. You know, when I see Bob Costa in the Washington Post story, I know that I'm gonna get really good reporting. Yeah. Um, Maggie Haberman in New York Times. So I'm not gonna dismiss the paper just because I see NYT. In fact, I think that's kind of, I don't know, it doesn't work for me. Right, and that's an important lesson that I try to bring to listeners on my show. For example, I have guests from Breitbart and Newsmax. Yeah. And also the Huffington Post and Mother Jones. And the, it isn't about those institutions. I mean, there's certainly people at Breitbart, Newsmax, Mother Jones, and HuffPost that I would never have on my show that right. are not welcome, that are, who are crazy. But but I know who's good and I know who's right. And, and if I put a reporter on my show, it's because I understand that they're awesome. In their yeah. Way. So and how do you deal said, with the, sorry. Oh, the haters. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Inevitably you put anybody on from Breitbart, for example, and they could be a good reporter or not, but you're going to get just slammed for being a hog for, for Republicans and yeah. vice versa, you know, oh, put yeah. somebody on from the post and you know, you're, you're part of the, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, zombie army of Hugo Chavez stealing election machines. Well, that's how, so actually true. How, <laughs> how, <laughs> 
Sorry. How, so how have you developed a thick, thick enough skin to deal with that stuff? It just, it's like been forever, you know, ever since I was just a, you know, cute little girl reporter on local news, it was still like, everyone was so sure, you know, that I was in the tank for somebody. And like, I remember I was covering one, um, like it was like a justice of the peace race back in Houston. I didn't know either of the candidates. I was just typing up a little, this one says this and that one says that. And we vote on Tuesday. And, uh, and I just got flooded with emails saying, well, you're obviously in the tank for candidate so-and-so. And I was like, yeah, don't even know the guy. Don't even care. No, no, absolutely not in the tank. It's just people just partisans are the worst judges of what's fair and what's mm. true. They, if someone's a conservative, I am the biggest liberal they ever heard. And if someone's <laughs> a liberal, well, I might as well be working at Fox News. So whatever. It just like it actually doesn't even penetrate. It's just it's just kind of funny at this point. Like after thirty plus years in the biz, I'm pretty confident of where I stand and people like and the funny thing is everyone thinks they're the first one to ever make these accusations <laughs> like well you've probably never heard this before but i think you're totally biased <laughs> uh thanks for making me aware i'll go to therapy and try to fix that um <laughs> how how uh, how um how different is the job from one press secretary to another oh it's very different i mean the job is the same but the press secretary can either be a help or a bother at the white house um some are better than others I've heard you express affinity for a couple of um, uh, w, George W. Bush's press secretaries. Um, and then uh, Joshy Pants, do I remember that right? Yeah, Joshy Pants. Yeah, Ernest. Yeah, Josh yeah. Ernest. So <laughs> now an executive at United Airlines. I hope they call him Joshy Pants there. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. So how could they make it different for you, for you uh, doing your job? God, they're all completely different. Um, it's just different how they deal with you, how helpful they are, how truthful they are. There were some press secretaries, um, for example, Scott McClellan and Dana Perino from the Bush administration and Josh Ernest and, um, and Jen Psaki, who's coming in to be Joe Biden's press secretary. She was communications director for Obama. These are people who you can trust what they tell you. I like, they are not BSing. They are not trying to deflect or redirect. You can go in and talk to them and they will, they may not tell you everything they know, but they will only give you uh, like, like truthful information. And those people are just worth their weight in gold. They are absolute professionals and they're terrific. And then there are other people who just want to make it personal and argue and, and attack. And they're just unpleasant to deal with at like Jay Carney, mm. uh, not a well-liked press secretary. And interestingly, you know, he came from journalism. He was a journalist forever and then became press secretary. And, and like, and so, and I don't know, I guess Obama thought that that would be good but for the press corps, it was not good. And, um, you know, and then there are others like that I just never got close to like Robert Gibbs and, um, you know, a few others, but um, so it, it's just, it's different. It's just different how they, how they deal with people is different. Like, like the thing about Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you know, when I would say that on the radio that like actually reporters liked her and the, and what you see, what you see on camera is not how people cover the White House. That's just, it's like a show. And I actually wish that they would take the briefing off camera. This is just, I mean, I guess it's good for TV to get their little sound bites, their little clips for the evening news and that's fine. But it, just in terms of news gathering and the purpose of covering the White House, the briefing is almost completely useless. Yeah, yeah. So going back a little bit, you experienced some pretty seismic shifts in the industry. Um, you made your way in more of a regional paper, and then there was this emphasis more on national stories. Um, you made your way in a paper, and then it, there was a shift into digital. 
Um, so you transitioned from Houston Chronicle, Washington Examiner, and then Politico. Well, I um, got laid off from the Houston Chronicle. Oh, terrible. It was 2008 and it was the, you know, it was the big crash. Yeah. It was, it was terrible. It was, it was actually, it was like a death. So I'd worked at this paper for 20 years and I was their Oof. white house correspondent, right? I was covering Bush. It was October 8th, 2008. And I got laid off with the whole rest of the bureau. It was just, it was a slaughter. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of us at the Houston Chronicle lost our jobs. And then every other paper in the country, like actually were folding and like the white house reporter for the LA times got laid off. And it was just like every day it was just another wave of layoffs in the industry it was terrible most of there was a I came from a 10 member Washington bureau most of us lost our jobs like all at once and most of them most of them had to switch careers like mid like in their 50s or 40s like mid-career go do something else and a lot of them to their credit found really interesting things to do one of them uh one of my former colleagues from the Chronicle now works at the National Archives oh. you know like interesting things like that so there were things you could do I was one. I consider myself one of the lucky ones out of 10 of us two of us stayed in journalism one's at Bloomberg now and and I I was able to get a job at the Washington Examiner which was a concert is is a conservative tabloid and it was you know founded by a creationist and it was you know it was very lightly regarded to say the least and uh but I but I was in journalism and I had a job and so I felt like I had found a life raft to I I couldn't find it I was not qualified I'm not qualified for any other job I have no college degree you know just kind of I can write but anyway so I was really lucky really really lucky to get that job and people always want to rub my face in it now they're like well you worked at the examiner it's like, yeah, I did. I was really lucky to have a job. I was grateful to them right. to keep me in. To, I mean, I would have been homeless. Yeah, yeah. Did you see any of those trends happening prior to the crash in 08? Yes. I mean, yes, it was, there was a slow buildup and there was newspapers were flailing because the internet decimated newspapers. I mean, it was a lot of different things that killed newspapers, but advertising, all those like big, like uh, department store ads and car dealer ads, like those went away. And that was just like how we paid the bills and then classified ads because of Craigslist and everything else, those went away. So all of a sudden there was no money. Papers got smaller and smaller and, and newspapers, the industry relied more and more on consultants and focus groups. And you take any focus group and they'll tell you that what they want is more local news, more local news, more local news. So they would reach, they would shift staff away from the national desk and hire like people to cover local sports. But the thing is like, no one's reading that. What they want is they want Kardashian scandal. They want like (laughs) sex scandal. They want like a drug scandal. They don't want like more coverage of what's on the lunch menu at, you know, Dalton high school. They don't want like, so uh, that was just like, it's just something people say in a focus group, like they want more local news, but they really don't. Because one of the things that we also learned from the internet is we know what people are reading because we see what they click on and they're not clicking on local news, you know, unless it's a local scandal, unless someone's going to prison or, you know, there's an FBI probe or, you know, something like that, then, then they'll read it, but just, it's just not that interesting. People don't want it. So when you did make the switch to Politico, how different was that? I mean, the, the, the process must have been very different and the the timing and the deadlines must have been very different. Actually, no, I mean, 
I think Politico is rough when you're in your 20s, right? Because they're like, you know, write faster now. It was it was really different for me. I remember my first day I had to write some story and I went over to my editor and was like, what's my deadline? And he was like, right now, your deadline is right now. Because <laughs> I, I thought I had like hours to sort of noodle around, you know, on a story. But no, I had to write it right now. And, uh, and you can always go in and update. And that's one of the beauties of it. So yeah, it was. But So when you start Politico in your 40s, they're kind of, they were kind of like, oh, just, you know, just be yourself, just do your thing. You're fine. So it was very different for me, you know, than I would say for someone younger who was just starting out, who they really, they would really like teach through like very hazing. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Are there certain tenets of journalism that you can still hold on to in that kind of environment with that kind of flow? Yeah, of course. I mean, you have to, you can't just rely on one source for things. You have to get like multiple sources. You have to, you know, it's all the same. It's just speed it up. I I asked the question kind of backwards. Are there certain tenets that you just have to let go? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, there's always like pride and like a really well-written story, but you get to, you get to Politico and there was a certain formula for the stories. And, uh, and, and so you had to learn that formula and that was a formula to write. And it was, it's a really good one. And you notice it after a while, like the first five graphs are solid, right? They are like the crux. And then like the rest of it is just like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and, uh, but they, the top of the story is really important. Whereas when you write for a newspaper and you have more time and like your deadline is seven or 8 PM, you can like really craft it, you know, and we'd uh, often like try to put a carrot at the end of a story, which was kind of a kicker, you know, like something like just something that a, a reader would carry away with them. You know, it's like a little, uh, you save like a little important point for the very bottom. Well, that all goes away. Like it just, they just chop it indiscriminately and they don't care. I'm trying to imagine a George Will or a Peggy Noonan in a The Hill. <laughs> No, but I mean, but Politico has changed because when it first started, they covered everything. They'd cover like, they, there, there was much more blogging and much more items. And if someone said something on Morning Joe, it would be a Politico story and everything. And they've gotten away from that. And actually who's moved into that is thehill.com, oh. which now covers everything. Everything. And Politico now has a magazine and they have foreign policy coverage and they've branched down. And so Politico is a lot more, has I think gotten it a lot more of a traditional mold of like stories you need, stories that help, not just every single thing that happens. Yeah. And um, whereas like other papers have sort of picked up the original Politico model and turned it into their kind of thing, which is great. Curious what your, how your experience was different at Politico versus Houston Chronicle or Dallas Morning News, Uh, you know, in terms of uh, your, your well, you just, you describe your process as a journalist a little bit, but more so the relationship with others at the company, whether it's other journalists or your bosses, your editors. Well, there's always been an incredible amount of camaraderie at uh, all the places I've worked. Um, and it, and that's like one of the most wonderful things about journalism that I love so much is other journalists. Like a lot of journalists um, grow up thinking they're the only people who are weird like we are. And then you meet a whole newsroom full of people who are like stone cold weirdos. <laughs> and the same things you do and have the same schedule and the same like bad relationships and, and uh, you know, kind of a C minus average and a slight drinking problem. And, uh, and, and that's, that's it's actually pretty universal i mean it's changed a little bit with millennials joining the workforce there's been a real culture shift in journalism but um but in terms of like going from the chronicle to the examiner to politico it was it was just like 
trading one group of friends for another. And it was wonderful. I loved Politico. Uh, John Harris and Jim Vandehei hired me and I would walk through a burning building for any of those guys. They, either of them, they're terrific. And all my colleagues there, like Maggie Haberman, Glenn Thrush, and they've all gone to the New York Times and stuff. And they're just, everyone's still doing really terrific work. And Politico is just a great launching pad. I mean, here in DC, everyone either has worked there or will work there. It's like the filtering system. Yeah. So I have a confession to make. I uh, part, part of my job over the last 20 years, um, it involves taking a lot of people out to lunch every day. So <laughs> fr- Fridays, I made a point, I would not schedule a one o'clock lunch, I'd schedule a 1230 lunch, because I wanted to be in the car by two o'clock, because two o'clock is your five o'clock. I just love that segment on Fridays when you're sitting around, what, I forgot what you called it off the top the round of my table. head. The round table. The round table. <laughs> and occasionally, didn't you have it? Wouldn't you have it at a, a yes, local restaurant or something? Yeah. yeah, no, we'd go to the uh, National Press Club bar and uh, have drinks. And that was really fun. Get everyone, tell people to come a little bit early. You know, <laughs> we had an open tab at the bar and they'd start, right? And then yeah. we'd just be on couches talking about politics. And, yeah, it was That's cool. great. Yeah. So the morning show, I don't know, maybe some... Bloody Marys and margaritas or something. <laughs> I don't know. How are you going to do well, that in the morning? Actually, you know, the round table was one of my boss's ideas because we had done it like one day just to, I don't know, fill time. We had a few people fill some time. And she and Liz Aiello was like, you know, you should do that every Friday. That was really good. And I really want to, I want to keep hearing the round table. And so that became a Friday thing. And so many people mention it as their favorite part of the show. When it, when it works, it just, it works. Yeah. It just things. Because, well, it's a, several informed people that are working on current stories, but also the camaraderie really shows through. You're all in the trenches together. You all really get what you're going through, but you're all really plugged in and engaged. And it's just, it's a really terrific, um, it's a terrific listen. So I'm going to miss that segment, but I'm sure you'll have a bunch of other great segments. Well, a lot of the, before we get off that, a lot of the credit for that goes to my producer, Patrick Faris, who really puts a lot of thought into the chemistry of groups. And he'll have like um, a bunch of journalists of the same sort of skill set or of the same sort of age grouping. And so he really, he, he's not putting like some 23 year old with some like 70 year old, you know, it's all like, it's all like similar people in a group and uh and i'm the one who sort of has to adapt but he's the one who who really puts that together so when when there's chemistry and it works which is every week that's really down to him that's great yeah that's you could tell that that chemistry really pays off so how did you why why did you decide to go into radio well i was um I was mid-career at, I was in my mid-40s at Politico and um, and I was having lots of conversations with John Harris and he was saying things like, uh, whatever you do, don't ever go into management and <laughs> stuff like that. And I was thinking like, what do I want to do with my life? You know, there aren't a lot of, in journalism, I'd already been a columnist. I didn't really like that. I didn't want to be an editor. I didn't want to, after a certain age, I think especially for women, there's a real lack of dignity and like hustling off to a briefing and, you know, trying to like scrap with like younger reporters and stuff like that. I was really thinking what I wanted to do with my life. And um, and there was an opening at Sirius XM. Joe Matthew, who had the job before me, was leaving and he kept saying to me, like, you should, like, you should talk to them. You should. And I was like, I don't, oh, I don't know. Could I? I don't know. Could I do it? <laughs> and but I love like challenges and like risk taking and things that scare me. And and this was scary. Cause if if I was bad at it, I had just blown up. 20 plus year writing career. Right. And, but so luckily at Politico, they told me that if I said fuck on the air too many times and got fired, <laughs> I got my job back. 
Which I think shows like they really, oh, they're, sorry, it's my coffee. It's okay. Do you need to get it? No, it's just turning off. Anyway, uh, so that was really kind of them. So I had it in the back of my mind and I've never said that on the air, you know, Knockwood. I mean, I just said it on your podcast, but I've never said it on Sirius XM. You did. Well, we got the explicit rating. It's one of my goals on every episode, nice. you know, especially with the theologians that I get on, you know, if I can get, if I can get just this awesome, perfect drop of an F-bomb, like I, that my day's work is done. <laughs> so, um, so how did you learn? Well, that's the thing. They don't teach you. They don't want to teach you. They want you to be natural. You know, they're not, they're not trying, Corey, to create NPR. <laughs> they're trying to be more natural on the air. Okay. So you, you bring up, uh, I should respond directly to the NPR thing, but it's a, there's a whole different thing. Have you ever thought about writing a play or a book or a movie or something? Yeah, I have. Because you have these voices that are perfect in your head. And <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to imagine the script that you would write with your like Elizabeth Warren voice and your de facto millennial voice talking to each other. And just like, <laughs> where do we go from there? <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, yeah, I have, but I, I lack follow through. I lack, I'm basically a 23 year old dude. I have no follow through. I can't, I, if it's not in front of me, I'm not going to do it. Um, but thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I, you know, they kind of threw me into radio and they were like, you know, they were kind of like, you're going to be bad at first, probably really bad, but you'll figure it out. And I got lots of tips, you know, and I read a lot of things like reading talkers magazine for like pointers on how to do this. And, you know, Tim Farley was a, a great uh, teacher, not, I had to learn, I run my own board on the show. I mean, not lately cause I'm, I'm doing the show from home, but when I'm in studio, I run my own board and I was really excited to learn that. And, and also um, one of the hardest things is to not interrupt right? To just let, let someone talk and to just go quiet, which is really hard for me because I always want to interrupt with witticisms. And I really had to stop. I had to learn how to stop doing that. Like, it'll still be funny in five minutes. Just, it's, it, just let it go. You don't need to say it. So uh, that, and also, you know, I was, I already had interview skills as a, you know, as a newspaper reporter, I could talk to people. And so I had that. And um, so, you know, over time, it just like the technical stuff, they, they, they're, thing was like, we want you to be natural and show your personality and the technical stuff will evolve over time. And it did. Everyone hated me at first. <laughs> Every, listeners hated me, hated, especially men hated because like if a woman is allowed to laugh at men, the whole system collapses. We cannot have that. We cannot, who is this woman who's laughing at John Boehner? This must not be allowed to stand because if women think they can laugh at men, the whole system collapses. And so they really ruthless. I forgot who, did, were you replacing Pete Dominic or was he still Joe on? Matthew. Joe Matthew. Okay. Oh, Joe Matthew. Uh, right. You yeah, said that. Three. And then Pete was, Pete moved to another channel to stars, I believe. And I, and then they moved me to his three to six. Cause I remember when you first came on and, you know, I had questions. I was often in the car and listening to that, that hour. But as soon as you came on, I was expecting it to be like the beer kind of a thing. You're not going to like it at first, but just give it another try. And, you know, after a week or so, <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll dig it. And uh -huh. I, it didn't even take that long. I, I was really? into it right away. Well, Thanks. partly because I was really, I, I was really curious about journalism and I could tell that, you know, 
all the jokes aside, I could tell that you were really passionate about good journalism and you really advocated for good journalists. And I just wanted to learn that. Thank Plus you. I was having fun along the way. So it was really, <laughs> it was really cool. Well, one of my pitches at Politico and well, and actually everywhere I've worked, I guess, is that news doesn't have to be so serious. You know, like there are some things like acknowledging the absurdity of things and not everything, not everything is like, la, 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 la. Right. But the, a lot of it is like, yeah. frankly, a lot of it is. And like, why can't we have a laugh at Louis Gohmert? Like, <laughs> you know, like, why, why can't we? And why can't we like call things down as they are? Like it's still journalism. And I don't think we have to like fool people by being like, my idea for the show was let's have a show where we talk about news the way we actually talk about it, not in our fake cable news. Like, well, actually, yeah. one of the things the president is trying to accomplish, like, no, we're not talking like that. We're going to talk like how we really do, which is like laughing at it, like acknowledging what's important, acknowledging what's terrible or good. And, but like also the absurdity of it. And so, and what it turns out that people really wanted to hear that. Mm. There was nobody doing that. Where are you going to hear that? Seriously, where are you going to hear that? You don't hear that. And so people really responded to it because they felt like it was an irreverent take on things that that had the depth to acknowledge what's important and to and to handle it maturely and responsibly, but also right. when something is stupid, to laugh at something that is stupid. Right. And it's, like, it's Washington. There's always something stupid. <laughs> There's always something stupid. Always something stupid. And I'd bet there's certain even politicians that appreciate. It. I could I could see John Boehner, you know, having a having a good laugh with you. Matt Gates is a huge fan of the show. Is he really? Loves it. Yeah. Oh, I could totally see that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the podcast medium definitely lends itself more to that. Like you can, if you're if you're anything other than authentic on podcasts, um, I think the audience is just gonna they're they're gonna fly away so fast. Mm -hmm. So my, my, my sometime co-host is my dad. One of, the, <laughs> one of the reasons, and, and my mom inevitably makes this like surprise cameo here and there, you know, not that she even thinks that what we're doing is even remotely important or paying attention. So she'll drop in and we're talking to some, you know, academic or something or some politician <laughs> and I'm going to yoga. <laughs> but, but, um, no, but one of the reasons I thought having my dad, because we have a little different political points of view, a little different theological points of view. But the biggest reason was that I can't be, I can't be full of shit when my dad's there because he'd call me out on it ASAP, you know, but yeah, to your point, I think that there's a certain voice that I can hear settling in like your NPR voice. And it just, it does, I wasn't aware of it until you pointed it out, but it does kind of turn me off at this point. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's also a lot of vocal fry out there, men and women. And the, that, that, that guttural thing that they do? Yeah, it's like, I can't do it right now, but it's like, it's like scratchy voice, like slow scratchy voice. And <laughs> yeah. uh, it really needs a flamethrower, like right uh, down the throat. Like just stop, just stop talking like that. I'm trying to do totally <laughs> yes yes that's it and men do it too yeah Younger, yeah to do it but it's yeah it's definitely a thing um so looking ahead i've been finding myself being drawn to independent media outlets have you been paying like uh, my my favorites i'm drawn to um in politics and news bulwark charlie sykes thing and the dispatch um uh, sarah ilger and, yeah, and those uh -huh. guys um, do you see that that there's, do you see a more democratization of media that way? Or, yeah, I mean, what do you yeah, see coming? I mean, people still have to make a buck, you know, people have to make a living off this stuff. And so it's really hard 
to have too much fracturing. Like right now in this moment, I agree with you. I think the, um, I think the never Trump Republicans are doing the most thoughtful, muscular, passionate journalism there is. And I, I love reading them. And I was so happy to, to subscribe and throw them some money and everything because <clears throat> I think they're really, really doing good work. But what happens to them in a Biden administration? What happens to Rachel Maddow? You know, what happens to the, to Joy Reid, the liberals? Like, what are you going to, you know, like people, people go to those independent outlets for a certain catharsis. Mm. And Joe Biden is going to be really dull. It's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be important and consequential and about the future of the country and everything, but it's not, it's not going to be about palace intrigue. And, you know, it's not going to be like this drama that we're used to. It's going to be like a really boring debate on healthcare. And, uh, and, and, and I, I worry that, that those models are not entirely sustainable. Right. Right. Well, if you look at certain, uh, maybe not news folks, but uh, opinion people, they, once Trump won the 2016 election, they went more towards criticizing the liberal media, as opposed to criticizing the Obama administration. I don't know, there's, seems like there's always some way to go, but you're right, that, that lane, it's like uh, the Charlie Sykes of the world just don't have a home right now. So they're forced to do some really good work, good, thoughtful, engaging work. Um, how, how, why do you think that broad label MSM bias emerged and, and like almost universally accepted? What, like, did you, was that already present when you started in journalism? Oh, yeah. it was already there. In fact, in fact, we, uh, there was a, a radio station back in Houston, uh, conservative talk that came out with a bumper sticker that was something about, uh, the bias B I A S liberal media. And we just laughed. I mean, it's grammatically incorrect. It's biased ED. It's not, you know, uh, it was right, something right. like, don't trust the biased liberal media. And it was like, <laughs> wow, you can only read that in a Southern accent. No disrespect <laughs> to the South, but that is how you read that. And uh, we, uh, so yeah, it's been around forever. It's It's been around forever. And people think we have way more power than we do. And there is a lot of power in journalism, but I mean, who cares what the Washington Post editorial board says? Like who's taking their marching orders from there? Like that's not, or, or they think that we, you know, can set the agenda or make things happen. And eh, maybe like a little bit around the edges. Like for example, if someone comes out with a really powerful investigative piece Mm -hmm. and that gets Congress to investigate something like opioids or something like that, like that can have an effect. But in terms of like moving, you know, public opinion and swaying the actions of politicians, no, absolutely not. So there's this idea that a lot of unelected people have outsized power and there's a natural reaction to that that i think that's a big part of it also yeah people think that we're all a bunch of liberals and that you know whatever and uh, and also it's kind of the last refuge of scoundrels like if you have nothing left <laughs> you attack the media and both sides do it democrats do it not as hard not as not as like not as well frankly but uh they do it too yeah and um it's just you know it just kind of rolls off us we're all used to it nobody cares yeah, I've been listening to your show for the better part of 10 years now, and I still don't, I still couldn't say which way you might vote on for any given politician or any given pol- policy. That's, is that, you know, is that intentional? That's just professional. This is my job. You know, that's the thing. People who love politics and follow it as a hobby cannot conceive of people who don't care about outcomes. I really don't care who, who people elect. I really don't care who I'm covering. Like I'll make it work with anyone, you know, and, and that's just my job. Like you don't worry that 
you wouldn't think like my dentist is having like an emotional meltdown because I haven't been flossing and he's going to be upset. He's not going to be able to sleep at night and he's going to be really mad at me. No, you're going to, the dentist is going to explain to you why you should floss. And he yeah. doesn't care. He doesn't like carry an emotional burden about it, but it's just like people don't take up dentistry as a hobby that they're passionate about. So they don't project their emotions onto dentists. And uh, so here I am doing journalism and here the rest of us are doing journalism. We don't get emotionally caught up in it. Although I will say that there was um, a very telling moment on my show recently where someone asked the round table, like someone on Twitter asked, what was the last story you got like emotionally worked up about? And I spoke for the group and said, nothing. We don't care. We're dead inside. We have no feelings. <laughs> but then the others, the others on the panel, like were like, well, I, I actually have, some, I, for one, it was the congressional baseball shooting. It was oh. like the last time she got upset about a story. For someone else, it was they had covered, they had written about a family that was starving, right? And that really got to them. And someone else had another example. So it actually ended up just being me. But that's because I, you know, I cover politics. And so I am dead inside. <laughs> they had all covered things, you know, politics adjacent that had gotten to them. And so every now and then I do a lot of mentoring and I tell like young, you know, young women I mentor that they're only allowed to get upset about two stories a year. That's it. Like if you get upset about more than two stories a year, you're doing it wrong and you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be in this work because when you look back on a year's worth of news, you really only remember two stories. So why would you get upset about more than that? So, um, yeah, so that, but anyway, so it's part of like, um, it's part of your professional toolkit is that you don't get emotionally involved in stories or else you, you would be fit for a straitjacket. You actually couldn't function if you genuinely cared about the vote on the COVID relief bill. Like if you cared what Mitch McConnell was saying, if you cared if Schumer was up to the job, like oh, man. nobody cares. You, you note it, you observe it, but you don't get wrapped up in it. And that's what people who followed as a hobby just don't understand. Right. It's a job. So the whole Marxist thing, just for the record, totally not true. <laughs> I actually know a couple of Marxists, but they are very able to write about hedge funds and things like that. Okay. Not a problem. Great. Terrific. That's encouraging. So since this is talk of politics and religion, Ooh. tarot cards? <laughs> How did I get started on tarot cards? Uh, it was back in, in Houston. And, uh, oh, okay. No, I remember. So I went to New Orleans uh, on a little trip and, uh, and you know how they had, they have, they used to have all those tarot card readers and people yeah. read chicken bones and everything out on Jackson square, yeah. like over by the cathedral. And I, I stopped by one and he was like this young guy with like a total crackhead, but he was handsome, which is why I chose him. <laughs> and, um, and he was reading tarot cards and he did such a good job and was incredibly perceptive. And I had all these questions and everything, and he was just really good at it. And, um, and so, you know, I kind of like really in earnest threw myself into it as a hobby really really learned it and um for a while i was doing it for my friends all the time but they kind of they don't want me to do it anymore <laughs> <laughs> i think i'm just too much of a truth teller um but uh and and so yeah i don't i don't do it like for money or anything like that it's more just like a hobby i love the symbolism and like you know it's just it's just kind of fun is it part does it partly mix with your observational skills that you've developed over the years maybe so maybe so because i really feel like the cards are just like for a lot of friends who ask, want, who were like, well, you know, you read my cards, they're like at a, at a crossroads or at a bad place. 
and what they really want to have is a conversation about it. And the cards can like bring up different aspects of things that we can talk about, which sort of is a conversation opener or starter or continuer. And so it's more like an accelerant, right? And so then it becomes more of a conversation between me and the friend and uh, rather than like a stunt that I'm performing. And then maybe it helps them think of things in a different way. Mm. Yeah. Maybe so. I don't know. It's just a just an idea. But I almost never do it now. Like I said, no one ever wants me to do it. Well, if next time I come, one of, one of my best friends lives in D.C. So if I come to D.C., um, I'll, I'd love to buy you lunch or dinner or something. And I'll throw some cards for you. Tell you fun. all about yourself. That'd be a lot of fun. So uh, two more questions and then and then a plug. I, I don't want to forget the plug. Um, second to last question is I'm trying to think if I forgot to ask you anything. Is there anything that I should have asked you? that I didn't yet. No, I don't think so. Okay, good. Um, I kind of feel like I'm asking my journalism professors. <laughs> no. um, and then, uh, do you, did you have any questions for me? How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's been a trying year, but it's been a clarifying year. And my wife hasn't left me. <laughs> yet yet um so we're still hanging on um i've learned a lot of new things this year i've gotten a lot more reading done this year um and developed some good habits and yeah so uh i might need to tail back the drinking a little bit <laughs> that's everyone yeah yeah i i put on the covid 19 am i allowed to say that <laughs> yeah um but uh yeah no i it's been um yeah it's been good. So thanks That's for asking. Good. That's good. So before we wrap up, tell us one more time about the new show and new time and all that good stuff. Oh my God, the new show. All right. I'm moving to mornings, which I mean, if you know anything about me, it's that I'm not a morning person, like <laughs> at all, like at all. At I was all. convinced that it was really that you were moving to like London or something like that. It's not really a 6am show. Eastern. I actually have a plan. Can I tell you my plan? I'd love to hear it. Okay. The plan is, so I know my producer is very worried. My producer is a morning person. He's up at like before six working away and he can never reach me like before like, like 11. <laughs> my husband and I stay up really late and it's not unusual at all for us to, to like realize the sun is coming up and we're still up like doing stuff. And so I was really worried about this new show. It's going to be six to 9 a.m. So I was going to have to get up at four in the morning. And so it was an old boss of mine, Craig Hines, who was an old bureau chief from the Houston Chronicle. And he was like, I mean, stay up all night and sleep during the day. That's the only way I see this working. And I was like, brilliant, brilliant into a nocturnal lifestyle. So I actually had a conversation with my doctor about it because all these scary stories on the internet about how unhealthy a nocturnal lifestyle is. And he was like, you know, if you get like some daylight and up your vitamin D consumption, you'll be fine. It'll be easier in the summer. You know, it'll be harder in the winter because you'll just you live in darkness. But you know, it's it's workable. It's doable. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sleep during the day. I'm going to get up at 7 p.m. And that's when my day starts. I am flipping it on its side. I'm going to live like like a vampire brilliant yeah, I brilliant know. maybe I know. start hitting those punk uh punk clubs or whatever <laughs> I'm a, little, I'm a little old for that but no mosh um, pits at this point i just turned 55 wow old for that but thank you but thank you for thinking that was still a possibility anyway so once i realized that that like complete lifestyle change was not only an option but was a preferred option completely set me free. I stopped panic buying alarm clocks on Amazon. <laughs> now I'm just like, 
what? I'll get up at 7 p.m. I can still meet my friends for dinner, like get all my work done. And then when it's the time for the show to start, already be up, no alarm clock. And then after that, I just like chill out for a bit and go to bed. I feel like it's a brilliant plan. I have not heard any downside yet. We'll have to see how it works out. Um, so yes, six to nine a.m. weekdays. Uh, it's called Julie Mason Mornings, which Julie. is in itself hilarious because like, <laughs> I only ever see the morning from the other side, and um, <laughs> it's going to be like sort of press pool adjacent, but not really like the press pool. More newsmakers is going to be like a faster, quicker kind of a morning vibe. Um, we feel like you know, even in pandemic, when people are listening at home, they're only listening for like forty minutes or so. So you got to keep going, like with it sets the table for the news day for Sirius XM. It's sort of like, here's what you need to know first thing in the morning, here's what's coming up. And here are like a bunch of newsmakers and a bunch of journalists. And, you know, maybe we're going to have like a chef or an author. It's just going to be really, this is going to be good. Really excited about it. Me too. Me too. I'm looking forward to listening. Although the the whole, I'm glad I have options other than having to get up at the 3am thing. So listen when it's convenient for you with the on demand, with the app. Terrific. Terrific. Julie, I can't tell you what a pleasure this has been. Uh, I feel like I made a new friend. Well, you got the, I feel like you already were a friend because, you know, (laughs) I've been listening to you, but now it's just such a treat to be able to get to know you, actually get to know you. So I I really, I'm so grateful that you came in. It's really a pleasure for me as well. Thank you so much for your thoughtful questions and your interest in the news biz. I really appreciate your open mind and your open approach to this. You bet. Be well, okay, Jewel? Yeah, I will. You too. Take care. Bye. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Tikkun Olam.